Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. 2020 has been a nonstop exhibition on how corporate media is so bad and getting worse. How much gaslighting and illusion can we take? I speak to journalist John Jeter for our final On the Media segment for this year. We see a lot of pushback from young activists, young lawmakers who are challenging the former president, uh, our first black president, for representing the interest of capital perhaps a bit more than the interest of black people and working people. And the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, makes an impassioned plea for humanity to save itself and address the climate and ecological crisis. Making peace with nature is the defining task of the 21st century. It must be the top, top priority for everyone, everywhere. In this context, the recovery from the pandemic is an opportunity. We can see rays of hope in the form of a vaccine, but there is no vaccine for the planet. Nature needs a bailout. In overcoming the pandemic, we can also avert climate cataclysm and restore our planet. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, with eight months and counting since the last pandemic relief was signed into law, congressional leaders are in hot negotiations this week to pass what would be the smallest aid package considered, with $908 billion being proposed, as safety nets such as unemployment relief and eviction moratoriums are set to expire for millions after Christmas. But action is far from certain. Senate leader Mitch McConnell circulated a version of a so-called relief bill with no boost to unemployment benefits, no new round of stimulus direct payments, and no aid to state and local governments. But it would grant corporations sweeping immunity from coronavirus-related lawsuits and a 100% deduction for business meals such as the three martini lunch. In response to the Kentucky Senator's proposal, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders tweeted Wednesday, Mitch McConnell's new COVID relief bill gives CEOs a 100% tax deduction for a three martini lunch, but zero to the 26 million who don't have enough food to eat. Yes, the Republicans' L-O-V-E corporate socialism for the rich, rugged individualism for the rest, ain't gonna happen, Sanders said. Meanwhile, all types of unemployment claims continue to top a million for the week ending November 28th. On Thursday afternoon, not far from the National Christmas Tree Lighting Ceremony, members of the group Unemployed Action joined with others in a rally and street production called How the Mitches Stole Christmas. We are dealing with heavy issues, but we have the opportunity to bring joy and laughter as we demand that Congress approves a stimulus plan for all, specifically a COVID-19 stimulus package that addresses millions of residents who have immediate needs that have been ignored by this administration. The cost of inaction by Congress will be disastrous for our families and communities. An estimated 12 million people will lose benefits 
the day after Christmas. Unless Congress acts now. With the CDC's eviction ban slated to expire at the end of the year, as many as 40 million people could be displaced from their homes. 26 million people are going hungry this holiday season. We urge Congress to extend pandemic unemployment insurance, pandemic employment, I mean, and pandemic emergency unemployment compensation, and restore the 600 federal pandemic unemployment compensation. We call on leaders to put people first and make the unemployment system and the economy more equitable and inclusive. In addition to advocating for a COVID stimulus plan, those gathered spoke about the need for health care and aid for students. Saba Shabaka, a student at the University of Maryland, told of the need to cancel student debt and the particular struggles of those currently enrolled in college. For international news, I'm joined by on-the-grounds geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn. He is the Morris Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. And one of the most recent of his books is The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. He joins us from Houston, Texas. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I want to first lift up the at least 110 farm workers massacred, some beheaded, some women abducted apparently in Nigeria's Borno State on Saturday, November 28th, Boko Haram and Islamic State West Africa province, which I didn't know existed until now, uh, operate in the area. And an AP report said that In this region, at least 36,000 people have been killed in this ongoing uh, conflict that they termed jihadist conflict. And when I first heard about this horrid attack, uh, I thought about some of our conversations about the impact of the U.S.-led NATO attack on Libya and how that attack had, you know, spread weapons and just this type of chaos throughout much of West Africa and coming south from Libya. So I don't know if you want to start there. Well, I'm afraid to say that you're right. And I'm also afraid to say that this kind of tyranny afflicts more than northern Nigeria. To a greater or lesser extent, you see similar trends throughout the Sahel, that is to say throughout Mali and Burkina Faso in particular, leading into Niger. And even if you head due southeast to Mozambique, I think we've talked about the rise of this religious zealotry there as well, which has been addressed most recently by the Southern African Development Community, which may be posting forces into northern Mozambique, which may then lead to cities like Pretoria, South Africa, and Harare, Zimbabwe being attacked in turn. You can see the rise of this religious zealotry as a direct outgrowth of the implantation of neocolonialism in the wake of the successful struggles against colonialism in Africa, led by leaders like Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, who were perceived as being too far to the left, too close to the socialist camp, 
and therefore were dislodged from power, but then that created an ideological and political vacuum that has been filled by these religious zealots. Uh, I should also mention another story that's gaining and getting a lot of attention. That's what's happening in Iran with regard to the apparent Israeli assassination of a leading atomic scientist in Iran. What's troubling in particular about this assassination, besides, of course, the morality and the legality of it all, is the fact that apparently it was a kind of robot-like killing, in addition to having assassins on the scene as well. Uh, This opens a Pandora's box because there's been a lot of attention in the international community about seeking to restrain the proliferation of robot soldiers and robot armies, for example. But with the proliferation of drone killings, particularly during the administration of the 44th U.S. president, I'm afraid to say that the genie is out of the bottle. Uh, Speaking of which, you may have noticed that preceding this assassination in Iran was a meeting in Saudi Arabia that not only featured U.S. uh, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo, but also Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, and it's suspected widely that this assassination and further attempts to destabilize Iran were high on the agenda. And in any case, this is backfiring, this is say these attacks on Iran, because there are forthcoming elections in Iran as well. And these kinds of bloodthirsty maneuvers are only serving to empower what are referred to as the, quote, hardliners, unquote, in Tehran which I don't think in the long term will be good news for Israel. Now, this will be a major issue for the forthcoming, presumed forthcoming, Biden administration to deal with beginning in January 2021. Uh, I'm happy to report that there is a new book out on President-elect Biden entitled Yesterday's Man, published by Verso, V-E-R-S-O, and the author is Bronco, B-R-A-N-K-O, Marcetic, M-A-R-C-E-T-I-C. I would recommend it to all of those seeking insight into the long career of Mr. Biden, who was truly yesterday's man. And then there are those who he has chosen to be his top aides. I'm right. thinking in particular of Anthony Blinken, who has the blood of Libya on his hands. And what's interesting about Anthony Blinken is that his stepfather, Samuel Pizar, who was a noted and affluent lawyer who lived in France, and of course, Mr. Blinken is a francophone himself, was also close to the notorious fraudster, Robert Maxwell. That name might ring a bell because Mr. Maxwell is the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, who is now in prison because of her serving as procurer and pimp for Jeffrey Epstein, the late Jeffrey Epstein. And I'll be interested to see if during his confirmation hearings, in addition to being queried about Libya, will he be queried about his relationship with the Maxwell family? I should also say that a very nefarious plot is taking place, according to Politico. That is to say that a number of Wikipedia biographies of 
incoming Biden administration officials are now being scrubbed and being rewritten to remove their more distasteful associations. And so we'll definitely have to keep an eye on that. Uh, Speaking of which, uh, I'm sure there are many in your audience who are following very closely and carefully what we've talked about in recent days, which is the conflict in Tigray province in Ethiopia. Uh, Apparently, the Tigrayan leadership has headed to the hills where they expect to launch a guerrilla conflict in light of the fact that the Addis Ababa regime apparently has taken over a good deal of Tigrayan province. It reminds me of when I was living in Zimbabwe in the 1990s, and I used to walk on a daily basis in front of the home of the exiled Ethiopian leader, Mengistu Haile Mariam, who was chased out of Ethiopia, you may recall, in the 1990s. And he, of course, tried to centralize the state, just like Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed is trying to centralize the state as well. And uh, we'll see if Mr. Abiy Ahmed ends up like Mengistu. So that's just one more story that we'll definitely be trying to keep up with from here in D.C. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me, Gerald. Thank you. In Culture and Media, a virtual tribute to freedom fighter Jack O'Dell was held in D.C. this week. Chantel James has more. The Claudia Jones School for Political Education continued its efforts to spread radical awareness this week with an event that honored and explored the legacy of Jack O'Dell and the freedom movement. Jack O'Dell, who passed in 2019, put down deep roots in the D.C. activist community as a longtime organizer and professor at Antioch College. Throughout his life, he was a labor organizer who worked with a variety of organizations, including the SCLC under Martin Luther King, Jr., For a night of celebration, panelists from the community whose lives have intersected with his shared art and instruction. They included Dr. Nikhil Pal Singh, author and editor with Jack O'Dell of Climbing Jacob's Ladder, the Black Freedom Movement writings of Jack O'Dell, vocalist and political activist Lucy Murphy, James Early of the Smithsonian Institution, one of Jack O'Dell's former students, Jamie Cruz Jr., and native Washingtonian cultural worker, Linwood Gatto Martinez Bentley. Gatto reflected on the life of Jack O'Dell in the form of a spoken word poem. Jack O'Dell, the former political activist, intelligence organizer, emerged and swiftly founded himself in the league creating for protest sit-ins Benefit concerts featuring the likes of Don Curl, Herb Belafonte, Pete Seeger, Sidney Poitier. Lucy Murphy shared about singing as a young person at demonstrations during the period when many were leaving black grassroots organizing spaces as D.C. government officials and the encouragement she received from Jack O'Dell to continue to hold power accountable. For On the Ground... This is Chantal James. Also on Culture and Media, the Eaton Workshop is sponsoring a free virtual festival with the theme, Another World is Possible. 
featuring films, panels, music, and more. Registration is at eatonworkshop.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. in our time everybody's fighting change coming yes that's why it's an acronym for riot everybody has a voice don't you dare stay silent if you say nothing you are an accessory to violence let these words by the tears of our people that are crying we can bring back hope but not the people that are dying it's what happens when the people you repress ask for change in the country that they built but you've ignored and denied this is sandra bland george floyd and every single family police brutality is intervened in and destroyed couple bad cops can't define all you other boys so every good cop needs to stand up and make some noise Nobody's born racist, man. It's something you learn deep-rooted in your brain from the day of your birth. I think it's time that we repair all of these bridges we burned and let love out of our hearts onto the cheeks we've turned. Spread love, show love, let's get rid of this curse. Don't wait for anyone to act, man. You go first. 400 years wasted, let's get rid of this hurt, because that's the only way we'll ever see peace on earth. President Bollinger, dear friends. I thank Columbia University for hosting this gathering, and I welcome those joining online around the world. We meet in this unusual way as we enter the last months of this most unusual year. We are facing a devastating pandemic, new heights of global heating, new lows of ecological degradation, and new setbacks in our work towards global goals for more equitable, inclusive, and sustainable development. To put it simply, the state of the planet is broken. Dear friends, humanity is waging war on nature. This is suicidal. Nature always strikes back, and it is already doing so with growing force and fury. Biodiversity is collapsing. One million species are at risk of extinction. Ecosystems are disappearing before our eyes. Deserts are spreading. Wetlands are being lost. Every year we lose 10 million hectares of forest. Oceans are overfished and choking with plastic waste. The carbon dioxide they absorb is acidifying the seas. Coral reefs are bleached and dying. Air and water pollution are killing 9 million people annually, more than six times the current toll of the pandemic. And with people and livestock encroaching further into animal habitats and disrupting wild spaces, we could see more viruses and other disease-causing agencies ju jump from animals to humans. Let's not forget that 75% of new and emerging human infectious diseases are zoonotic. Today, Two new authoritative reports from the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Programme spell out how close we are to climate catastrophe. 2020 is on track to be one of the three warmest years on record globally, even with the cooling effect of this year's La Nina. The past decade was the hottest in human history. Ocean heat is at record levels. 
And this year, more than 80% of the world's oceans experience marine heat waves. In the Arctic, 2020 has seen exceptional warms with temperatures more than 3 degrees Celsius above average and more than 5 degrees in northern Siberia. Arctic sea ice in October was the lowest on record and now refreezing has been the slowest on record. Greenland ice has continued its long-term decline, losing an average of 278 gigatons a year. Permafrost is melting and so releasing methane, a potent greenhouse gas. Apocalyptic fires and floods, cyclones and hurricanes are increasingly the new normal. The North Atlantic hurricane season has seen 30 storms, more than double the long-term average and breaking the record for a full season. And Central America is still reeling from two back-to-back -back hurricanes, part of the most intense period for such storms in recent years. Last year, such disasters cost the world 150 billion US dollars. Meanwhile, climate policies have yet to rise to the challenge. Emissions are 62% higher now than when international climate negotiations began in 1990. Every tenth of a degree of warming matters. And today we are at 1.2 degrees of warming and already witnessing unprecedented climate extremes and volatility in every region and on every continent. We are headed for a thundering temperature rise of 3 to 5 degrees Celsius this century. And the science is crystal clear. To limit temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, the world needs many things, but for instance, to decrease fossil fuel production by roughly 6% every year between now and 2030. Instead, we are going in the opposite direction. It is planned that we'll have an annual increase of 2%. The fallout of the assault on our planet is impeding our efforts to eliminate poverty and imperiling food security. And is making our work for peace even more difficult as the disruptions drive instability, displacement and conflict. It's no coincidence that 70% of the most climate vulnerable countries are also among the most politically and economically fragile. And it's not happenstance that of the 15 countries most susceptible to climate risks, eight host the United Nations peacekeeping or special political mission. As always, the impacts fall most heavily on the world's most vulnerable people. Those who have done the least to cause the problem are suffering the most. And even in the developed world, the marginalized are the first victims of disasters and the last to recover. Dear friends, let's be clear. Human activities are at the root of our descent towards chaos. But that means that human action can help solve it. Making peace with nature is the defining task of the 21st century. It must be the top, top priority for everyone everywhere. In this context, the recovery from the pandemic is an opportunity. We can see rays of hope in the form of a vaccine, but there is no vaccine for the planet. Nature needs a bailout. In overcoming the pandemic, we can also avert climate cataclysm and restore our planet. This is an epic policy test.
But ultimately, this is a moral test. That was the voice of Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the United Nations, speaking on the state of the planet at Columbia University in New York City on Tuesday, December 2nd, 2020. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And while 2020 has laid bare the failure of U.S. capitalism to take care of its people during a pandemic and economic meltdown, this year has also been a nonstop exhibition on how corporate media continues to be so bad and getting worse, leaving Americans with no facts about how and why the richest country in the world has the most deaths and cases during this pandemic, why millions of working people and small businesses have been left to wither and die, why a presidential election that cost $14 billion allowed us to only swap Republican representatives for the 1% for Democrat representatives of the 1%. Well, joining me now to help us break it all down for our final culture and media segment for the year is John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of Flat Broke and the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. And I hope that intro wasn't too much of a downer, but I'm trying to keep it real here. So tell us what about media is on your mind. Well, thank you for having me back, Esther. Yeah, well, you know, this has been a downer of a year, really, on a lot of fronts. And one of the most vexing for me has been the coverage of the economy, or perhaps I should say the lack thereof, particularly in our mainstream media, and really a failure to represent the the very real dilemmas that we face as a nation in coping with our economic crisis, and one that, by all accounts, by many economists at least, is threatening to be much worse in the year ahead. And so I have one example that really caught my eye, in part because it's in the paper of record, the New York Times, and it was from December 1st, just a few days ago, titled, quote, These Little Landmines Could Prevent a Summertime Boom. It's written by Neil Irwin, and I'll just read just the first two graphs where he says, for the first time since the pandemic shuttered the economy eight months ago, the end is in sight. The development of vaccines that appear to be safe, effective, and ready for wide distribution in the months ahead means it's now possible to envision a post-COVID economy by summer. There is a distinct possibility that the economy could roar back to full health quickly as soon as public health conditions allow. But for that to happen, the United States will need to make it through what might be a cold, dark winter, 
in which damage could be done to the tissue of the economy that prevents that rapid healing, unquote. Um, I don't know what economy he's talking about. The only thing recognizable in that uh, passage is the cold, dark winter, which is almost surely ahead as the COVID cases worsen. But also as more and more businesses plunge to their death in this pandemic and in the closing of the economy and the loss of, of buying power. It's simply not a fair characterization of the of the economy that we face, we, 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 which was not good before the pandemic. It was one in which basically the U.S. Treasury was buying bonds from Wall Street to prop up asset prices, to prop up stock prices. But Main Street was starved of resources and has been starved of resources, certainly since the Great Recession that began in 2008. And I would argue that this has been sort of the pattern for the United States economy, the macro economy, certainly, since Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. And so it describes almost a parallel universe in which few real Americans, those Americans who aren't investors, who aren't owners of enormous amounts of stock, do not recognize and therefore uh, doesn't give us the information that we need to, to fight uh, this economic malaise, this economic crisis, and what could possibly be an economic catastrophe right. uh, that's right. bearing down on us. Right. And when you look at the appointments by Joe Biden, the, the economic team just announced this week with the likes of Neera Tandon uh, heading, at least nominated to head the OMB, you see that there seems to be this repeat of what Obama did. These really tepid reforms, remember cash for clunkers and a few other things. But, you know, Bernanke put very little into the economy to help those of us like losing our homes and losing our jobs. And what did that lead to? It led to Obama losing the House in 2010. And then it, it led to Trump winning in 2016. So if Biden doesn't, you know, summon his inner Roosevelt, if it's in there somewhere, they seem to be in the same netherworld that this uh, New York Times author is in. Well, let's be clear. Near Tandon is no Lucy Perkins, so the chances of Biden summoning his inner FDR <laughs> are slim to none, right? I mean, this is the bottom line, uh, such as it is for the United States right now. Americans don't have buying power, and that has been exacerbated by the Obama administration, Obama and Biden's handling of the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis, in which they did not give a haircut to investors' bundled mortgages, which would have done what? It would have restored buying power, right? This is vital. You don't have to be an economist to understand this. What they needed to do was to restore buying power by giving people a haircut on these toxic predatory loans. They didn't do that. Instead, they showed more money at the same lenders, right, to basically do it again. And so we're in a very real fix. And articles like this by Neil Irwin just don't help us at all sort of confront the beast that we're staring down right now. Right. And unlike not only socialist countries, but even even other capitalist countries um, gave people um, basic income so that they could stay home during the pandemic. So they didn't have to go into meat houses and work shoulder to shoulder with people and get covid and have your bosses bet on how many how many of you will get sick and die or not even protect their health care workers. So 
you know, other economies of all stripes handled it better. And the fact that they're now trying to rush through this week some type of small emergency measure here in D.C., the Congress is, uh, it just shows how desperate they are and how inept they've been this for this whole year. But um, I know we could chop this up for like forever, but, you know, I want to kind of keep us on time. So I know you're also looking at some other things in the world of culture media. Yeah, well, the other thing, on the same topic, actually, this sort of estrangement between the media and the public, I think, was... Uh, reflected in our former president, Barack Obama, who has a new book out, a new best-selling book already. And he's made some comments in that book that have caught the ire of some young activist legislators and a lot of people as well, I think. Uh, one of the claims made in his book is an attack on his former pastor in Chicago, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, a man who I've had the pleasure of dining with once. And he is, again, as he and his wife have done a number of times, both in their books and in their public utterances, attack Jeremiah Wright as a sort of dinosaur, as a sort of a man harboring these sort of racial, this racial bitterness, which blinds him to the intrinsic goodness of white people. And this has caught the ire of many uh, people uh, across the world, including uh, that's Reverend Bozak, Alan Bozak in South Africa, who is a very well-known, uh, or at least in some circles, yeah, theologian and, and very well-known anti-apartheid activist. And I don't know if you want to play a clip from what he, his criticism of Obama, and particularly his linkage of Obama's criticism of Reverend, Reverend Wright to, again, one of those things that the media doesn't particularly do a good job of representing, which is U.S. foreign policy, both under Obama, also under his predecessors in Bush and Clinton, and to a lesser extent, although just as damaging, I think we can argue, with Trump. Yes. So, yeah. So let's go to that. Former President Barack Obama has a new book out, and it is guaranteed to be yet another bestseller. In that book, he has, as he has done before, he devoted a page or two to retired preacher Dr. Jeremiah A. Wright. Someone sent me the pages from that book where President Obama discusses Dr. Jeremiah Wright. Jeremiah Wright is my friend. Barack Obama is still riding a high wave of popularity, certainly among the circles of the established moneyed political aristocracy. He is, we are told, the second most popular Democrat and the most famous. Netflix makes documentaries about him and his wife, Michelle. He is at the top of the most select speaking circles, raking in enormous fees. But more than that, Obama's political power and influence are far from diminished. This past U.S. election cycle, he played it smart, coming out sparsely but making it count every single time. He came out to help rig the Democratic primary, cleverly helping to maneuver Bernie Sanders out of the game and to usher in the establishment anointed Joe Biden. Next, he sabotaged the strike action of the NBA, thereby neatly achieving three goals simultaneously. Helping the white ownership save face, securing their profits, and undermining the efforts towards solidarity 
with the Black Lives Matter movement. Third, he came out to campaign for Joe Biden in Michigan, where Democratic chances were dicey. In Flint, of all places, where he pulled that shameless stunt of pretending to drink the poisoned water just when publicity about that crisis was reaching boiling point. Then he assured the terrified parents of threatened children, most of them black, that their water was actually safe. Nothing has changed. The unspeakable damage to those children continues to this day. Governor Rick Snyder got away scot-free just like Obama has allowed the Bush-era torturers to go untouched, their foul deeds unaccounted for, unrepented, and unpunished. Every time the goal was the same, to secure the status quo, to make sure nothing changes for the poor, struggling masses, crying out for justice, dignity, fundamental, systemic change, and hopeful life. And it all went the way he actually wanted it. That is how powerful this man still is. And for this, the establishment and the media glorified him. But President Obama might be basking in the warmth of a toxic sun. The younger, wide-awake generation, who are now politically far more aware than Obama was when he was their age, are no longer taken in by the suave, cool politician. So, John, that's the South African theologian Alan Bosak releasing this really devastating critique, as you heard, of Obama's, not necessarily the whole book, but just the fact that he has taken the time to continue to dog Reverend Jeremiah Wright. And apparently Michelle also did in her book and really breaks it all down. Like I said, I'm going to include the link to that whole video on, on, on the ground show.org um, on, under this show. Right. And almost on cue, Obama has been giving interviews on, on television about his book and one of his crit critiques has been against the Black Lives Matter uh, slogan, uh, as he calls it, defund the police. And so he says, and I quote a few days ago, I believe, he says, and I quote, you lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. I, I think uh, he actually said this on like a, a tick, a show on like, either TikTok or or Snapchat. <laughs> I think it was like, and it's been picked up by other media, but, you know, other people were saying, wow, I didn't know, you know, Obama did, you know, shows on TikTok or Snapchat. Let's, let's try to book the president, right? So anyway, right. but yeah, right. And then he got uh, a, a real big pushback from um, Ilhan Omar and Cori Bush. Do you have those, uh, their comments on Twitter? Okay. Uh, and so newly elected Congresswoman Cori Bush, an African-American from the St. Louis area, responded to President Obama's critique with this tweet, quote, with all due respect, Mr. President, let's talk about losing people. We lost Michael Brown Jr. We lost Breonna Taylor. We're losing our loved ones to police violence. Then she continued, it's not a slogan. It's a mandate for keeping our people alive. 
defund the police. And represent, Representative Ilan Omar from Minnesota wrote on Twitter that the push to defund the police is, quote, not a slogan, but a policy demand. And so we see a lot of pushback, almost just as Alan Bozak uh, described in his sermon, we see a lot of pushback from young activists, young lawmakers who are challenging the former president, uh, our first black president, for representing the interest of capital, perhaps a bit more than the interest of black people and working people. Right. Right. I mean, just hearing this uh, piece by Alan Bosack, it just did so much for me because I'm almost on the brink right now. Um, you know, we are just, we, this year has been such a year of people being gaslit, uh, to the extent that we're almost, we're being gaslit, gas, gaslit to the brink of extinction with people not even acknowledging climate change with, you know, John Kerry, this person who has championed fracking in the past being, um, over, oh, being appointed to oversee, uh, climate in the Biden administration, you know, and it's just, uh, it's just so outrageous, you know, to be in this misery, this, you know, this capitalist failure laid bare this year. And then to hear people like Obama who committed war crimes, right? He gets to tell his story, you know, he gets yeah. to tell his story, not the people in Libya he killed, right? Yes. Uh, Gaddafi doesn't get to tell his story. The people in slave markets in Libya right now, they don't get to tell their story. They don't get to write a book, you know, and you know, even that that lying PR stunt, like the white helmets in Syria, um, they they got to, to to make movie about them, and they made a documentary about the white helmets. You know, made a lie about a lie, and gave them an Oscar. So we're at the we're I'm just really about through with this whole Obama project of this this presentation given to us that I'm supposed to identify with because of skin color, but is who is like totally putting forth these policies that's not only that are not only killing me, but that are killing the planet. And, you know, topping it off with this Obama 2.0 with all these people, um, well, apparently not enough brown people according to the civil rights organizations, but like like that makes a difference being put into the Obama, Obama Biden cabinet as if that is, you know, saving me somehow. That is, you know, where we're still talking about people versus policy, you know. And so I'm just really that that really just did the world for me. And I'm thank you for sharing that. And so that I could include it on the show. Um, I'm speaking with the journalist John Jeter uh, for our final culture and media segment for the year here on On the Ground. I think I think we should start a movement, Esther, for African Americans, not in my name, right? Oh yeah, we right. Should, we, yeah. Should, <laughs> we really almost like the you know the, the, the Jews who protest the, the Zionist actions, we should, you know, sort of protest the, 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 the things done in our name as black people by Barack Obama and his acolytes and his disciples. We should start a movement because it's really it's insulting, it really is, you know, the 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 caring of the water for the white supremacists 
by black men and then expecting us to cheer. And some of us do, unfortunately. And I think, you know, you probably are, are like me. You've lost a lot of friends because of this. But I'm just not cheering. I'm not happy. Uh, you know, I don't care if he's black. I don't care what color he is. And we, we really need, you know, it's like Malcolm X said in here. It's like Malcolm X said, I'm for truth no matter who tells it. And that's, that is the truth, right? I'm for right. truth no matter who tells it. Well, that is the perfect segue to our final culture and media piece for this month. And it's the perfect place to take a brief break. This is On the Ground on Pacifica Radio. We'll be right back. is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Averam speaking to journalist john jeter and before the break john i promised that i had some stories for you uh, my story it has to be the ongoing censorship of journalists and major earth shattering stories that americans will only know through the alternative press and also the violent suppression of peaceful protesters here in the United States. First, while all these people involved in former U.S. wars and invasions, you know, murderous foreign policy are headed back into power in the White House, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is illegally jailed in Belmarsh Prison in the U.K. because he exposed their crimes and their complicity. And so there's a pretty well circulated email now that I think WikiLeaks exposed revealing near Tandon's assertion that America should attack Libya to take its oil, for example, kind of showing her attitude toward Libya being the pretty much the same as Trump's towards Syria, you know, or Iraq, you know, take the oil, you know, like, uh, or, or his attitude toward any of the black and brown people he's attacking, take their oil, you know, and, I've also been following a series of articles by Aaron Mate at the Gray Zone, uh, basically revealing how whistleblower inspectors inside the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, it's commonly called the OPCW, they have produced evidence that the report produced on alleged chemical weapons attacks in Duma, Syria, was altered to exclude their conclusions that these attacks did not occur and that the videos taken by the White Helmets were likely staged. Now, of course, these alleged attacks were the basis for a U.S. missile attack by Trump on Syria, and the media cheered him on at that point as finally looking presidential. And some of these same war hawks are heading back into the White House are the ones who wanted Obama to directly attack Syria with missiles himself. But, but to his credit, he actually did not do that. But he did support that, that crippling civil war that devastated Syria and but, you know, Assad's government did not fall to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, or any of the other groups funded to fight and defeat the Syrian people. In fact, the first director general of the OPCW, Jose Bustani, was blocked from giving his testimony in support of these inspectors 
before the UN. He was blocked from giving his testimony before the UN in support of these inspectors. And that was in April of 2018. So two months ago in October of this year, 2020, he gave the testimony, he read his testimony in a video for the gray zone and they posted it on his, on their website. And this is a part of what he had to say. Regardless of whether or not this is substance to the concerns raised about the PCW's behavior in the Duma investigation, hearing what your own inspectors have to say would be an important first step in mending the organization's damaged reputation. The dissenting inspectors are not claiming to be right, but they do want to be given a fair hearing. If the OPCW is confident in the robustness of its scientific work on Duma and in the integrity of the investigation, then it should have little to fear in hearing out its inspectors. If, however, the claims of evidence suppression, selective use of data, and exclusion of key investigators among other allegations, are not unfounded, then it's even more imperative that the issue be dealt with openly and urgently. That was Jose Bustani, the first director general of the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, reading testimony that he was blocked from giving before the UN, and he gave it this year for the Gray Zone uh, in support of those inspectors who alleged fraud in that chemical weapons report that was used to bomb Syria. And I guess related to that real quick is that um, journalists at the Gray Zone have also uncovered this year what they termed uh, industrial grade U.S. public relations propaganda operations targeting Syria, Venezuela, and other countries where the U.S. is attempting to foment regime change. And like I said before, to steal, you know, the natural resources of another country. So, to sum up, various other scattered acts of censorship are also rampant. Most recently, the U.S. Department of Justice announced that it had seized the web domain of the American Herald Tribune, an alternative media outlet critical of U.S. foreign policy. And they also seized 128 other media sites claiming that they were connected with Iran as if being connected to Iran should matter, right? And the American Herald Tribune was only able to reconstitute itself by registering outside the United States. So taken together, the continued imprisonment of Julian Assange, uh, the squashing of truth by the chemical weapons inspectors in Syria, and increasing acts of censorship, criminalizing of protesters in places like Denver and Florida. I don't know if you saw that DeSantis proposed legislation in Florida. This looks like something out of the Third Reich. And it means that those of us who fight for the First Amendment will definitely have to stay very vigilant about press freedom and freedom of speech in 2021. Yes, no, I agree. And if I could just add very quickly, I think, you know, this is important. This is not just sort of a uh, a professional jealousy thing or, you know, any kind of personal animus that you or I have towards Obama or anyone else, right? This is about a narrative that will help inform our democracy. What's happening if we connect these sort of bad economics reporting that I, I mentioned at the top of the show with these uh, suppression of journalists and these uh, military interventions? What's happening 
if we can connect the dots, if the media will connect the dots for us or help us connect the dots, we would see that there is a, a straight line to be drawn between the uh, misrepresentation of an economy that has been depleted of buying power, consumer buying power, and this push to go to war to steal other people's stuff, right? They can't make money off of us anymore because they've squeezed us, they've nickel and dimed us to death. We don't have it anymore, right? And so they have to go to war in Libya, right? Think about when Libya happened. Libya happened right after, just a few years after the 2008 recession began, right? At the behest of Goldman Sachs. They needed that money to keep the, the, the machine going. And so I just, you know, I hope people sort of keep that narrative in mind, understand what the silence is and why the silence is. Yeah, yeah. And if you look back at that near attendant email, she's she's corresponding with someone who says basically, well, you know, Libya shouldn't have to pay for our domestic problems, basically. Right. You know, that's what that's what the person is saying. And I, I, I thought when you were speaking, I thought about it and, and I'll have to wrap it up. But uh, the fact that when we talk about these images being constructed for us and truth being lies being constructed as truth for us. We have to look at also this year how the these uh, peaceful protests were were called violent and but the violence was being caused by the police, right? The violence, the, all the pictures of the tear gas, uh the many of the a lot of the viol- the vandalism they found out was being caused by these right wing infiltrators going around smashing windows and causing mayhem separate from the peaceful protesters. And then, of course, these right wing um, vigilantes attacking the protesters and causing violence and even killing people. And and these murders, those murdered, these martyrs for justice aren't even really being lifted up like they should be. But anyway, I just maintain that we have to stay vigilant. Um, we look, we have comrades in Denver uh, who have uh, been charged with multiple felonies. Um, and that's, that's the new tactic to charge peaceful protesters with multiple felonies as a way to discourage freedom of speech and as a violation of their first amendment rights. So anyway, we'll have to stay vigilant and I'm glad that I have this, space with you to stay vigilant john definitely definitely i agree all right well i've been speaking with our media critic and friend of the show john jeter former foreign bureau bureau chief for the washington post pulitzer finalist and his most recent book is flat broke in the free market how globalism fleeced working people Thanks for joining me today, John. And if I don't speak to you before the new year, have a happy holiday or just some time to just take a break before we have to get into the new year and keep fighting. (laughs) Same to you, Esther. All right. Well, that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. At onthegroundshow.org, our website, you can check out all of our current and past shows, contact us and support us. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On The Ground Show. Our new podcast, On The Ground with Esther Averam, that's On The Ground, W. Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. And if you check out the podcast, I would appreciate your nice rating Our new podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. If you see something else, that's not the right on the ground. 
The music we played this hour included Black Lives Matter by Dax, Fight the Power by the Isley Brothers, and Bohannon's Beat by Hamilton Bohannon. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.